If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 5 and 6 this morning. It's two verses in one service. Can you imagine? Two verses. I pray that Ephesians has been an encouragement to your heart thus far. I want to read again these words through 14 for us to set the context. He says this, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of all time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray again. Father, let's pray as we study Your Word this morning that our hearts would be to the praise of Your glorious grace. It's in Your Son's name. Amen. I have a question. I want to start with this question. Whose son or daughter are you? Who is your parents? Who is your father? Who is your mother. Just think about that for just a moment. You know, you can tell often who a father and a son, you can often tell the pair, a mother and a daughter, you can often tell the pair, ha, them two go together, right? They look alike, they act alike, you can often tell that they are a pair by having the same mannerisms often. Or maybe the same goofy responses in conversation where they don't know what to say. Maybe their social skills are similar. You can often tell the pairs, right? You can tell they, they look similar. I'm going to set this down so that I don't spill it. <clears throat> You can also often tell a father and a son or a mother and a daughter, a parent and a child in spiritual ways too, often by the way they view the world. The way they view the world is similar. Maybe by the way they try to control things. By the way they get angry when things don't happen their way. Or maybe it's the things they seek joy in. Maybe these things are similar. <clears throat> and, I, and I would propose to you that often, that probably more often and in more ways than not, you are more of a reflection of your parents than you realize. Whether you like that or not. You know, the way someone lives their life is a direct reflection, or at least an often reflection, of the bloodline from which they come. It's a reflection of 
of whose offspring they are. And all of us come ultimately from the blood of Adam. Our, we are descendants ultimately of the first Adam, the Adam in the garden. He is our father of sorts. We are our, his sons, his children. His same propensity to live life without God is our same propensity. His choosing to define morality, His choosing to worship what He would want to worship is the same challenge, the same propensity that we have. So I want you to kind of tuck that in the back of your mind as we work through today's passage. You know, last week, last week we talked about God's sovereign choosing of some unto salvation. Meaning that there was some that He did not choose to salvation, but there was some that He did choose to salvation. This choosing, we talked about, is how we become connected to all the spiritual blessings that we're about to talk about, including this week. We talked about how this should lead, this choosing should lead to holy and blameless living. That God has chosen us to be saved, and that means that we should be right before Him, that we will be right before Him, holy, blameless before Him in Christ as a current reality, but then as we struggle in this life, we seek and pursue holy and blameless lives. That we should look forward to heaven when all struggle with sin will be over. But that we would strive for this reality now. We'd strive for holiness and blamelessness now. So my question for us today, then, is in light of what we talked about last week, and thinking through this passage today, is how is it that we live holy and blameless lives before Him? How do we do this? What has God done? Because we, the reality is, if what Paul's going to say in chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, how is it that we actually can live holy and blameless lives if indeed we were dead? What does God do? How does that work? How is it we live holy and blameless before Him? How is this possible for us to pursue holiness now and for us to already be holy before God now? And I think, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but I want to point us to this reality. What we're going to see in verse 5 and 6, Paul tells us here and will tell us a little bit more clearly in chapter 2 that our identity has changed. It's different. Who we are is different. That our heritage, if you will, has changed. Our Father is someone different. So with that said, let's read Ephesians 1, verse 5 through 6, where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. It says in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So my thesis, if you will, for this morning, my proposition is this. Delight in the Father, for He has predestined you to be His Son through the work of the Beloved. Let me say that again. Delight in the Father, for He has predestined you to be His Son through the work of the Beloved. Obviously, I'm, I'm saying He's predestined you to be His Son I'm speaking to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? Remember, Paul is talking here to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, not those who are followers of a religion or think that they might be saved. These are to the faithful in Ephesus. So to the faithful in renovation, I say, delight in the Father, for He has predestined you to be sons through the work of the Beloved. He loved us into sonship. That's what I want to talk about this morning. He loved us into sonship. He predestined to adoption. 
These eternal blessings we have are blessings found in Christ, the Son of God, as we are made sons with Christ. So I want us to see that not only last week He chose us, but God also took pleasure in sovereignly planning your adoption. Just think about these words with me. God took pleasure in sovereignly planning your adoption. To make you a child of His. The Father chose us, but I think logically, before He he planned the ones of which He would choose, I think He sovereignly chose that the ones I'm going to choose, I'm going to make them my sons. I'm going to make them my sons. Not not no no offense, ladies, but not daughters, not just children. I'm going to make them my sons. Now, why sons? We'll talk a little bit more about this later. <clears throat> Certainly, you have the whole what does a son mean in this lifetime and this this context for Paul. But I think even more than just the cultural context of son, I think it's son because of the son, Jesus Christ, who he was and is the only man worthy to stand before the presence of God. So yes, culturally, sons because of the status in which they held, but eternally because of the son and the status in which he holds eternally. When God makes us His sons, we stand in Christ the Son and are therefore fit to be in the presence of God. So sonship, eternal, our sonship, our living eternally with God as His sons is based upon the eternal, never beginning, never ending sonship of Jesus Christ. We'll flesh that more, flesh it out more as we go. Look at verses 5 with me. We're just going to look at this first phrase. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Right there. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, I would just encourage you. This is part of like why we do Renovate Us and, and kind of how we've strung everything together from Renovate Us to Sunday service to house gatherings. Because we want you dwelling on these passages at least for a week. My goodness. To just think for a week on the phrase, He predestined us for adoptions as sons. That's one of the things I count as such a blessing as a pastor to get to, to be freed of time, just sit in my office and think on these phrases. He predestined us to adoption as sons. If, if you're looking for a sub-point, we were predestined for adoption as sons. He says that. <laughs> God, so let's think about this. God sovereignly planned this. God sovereignly planned that He would take enemies of His and make them not just okay with God, not just right before God, not just servants in His house before the King of the universe, but would make them sons. Now, I want to be clear here. We are not sons like Jesus is the Son. We are sons by adoption. As Lloyd-Jones would say, he is the only one by generation who is the Son of God. We are not sons as that is such. We are sons by adoption. We are not like God as Jesus is like God, in full essence having never not been like God. That is Jesus. We have been not like God. You and I will be not like God today and tomorrow. Jesus has never not been like God. So we are not, uh, we are not sons like that. You know, Mormonism, they believe that we all end up as gods of sorts. That's not what we're talking about. We are not adopted to be gods. We are adopted as sons. This is why Christ had to go. So if we are not like God eternally, then something has to change inside of us. I think this is why Christ had to go. Why we have to be in Christ, but then Christ goes, the Holy Spirit comes, takes up residence in our hearts, therefore changing our makeup, changing who we are. We're no longer sons of Adam, but now sons of the adoption. Sons of God. 
This is part of the adoption process. New hearts, new identity. Now we are sons. Now, again, we are no longer children of Adam, but instead we are children of God. We have hearts that now beat for God. That desire holiness and blamelessness. We have a different father, a different person of which we now begin reflecting. But what, you, what I want you to see is that this predestining to sons has to happen in order for the blamelessness and the holiness to take place. So God has to do a change in our, in our makeup, if you will, in order for this to take place. Now I want to think a little bit more now about this idea of, of sons. Adoption as sons and him as our father. I want to read to you a quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And I like what he says here. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. He's Certainly he is Yahweh, but for us Christians he is Father. He is our Father. That was the end of the quote there. He is our Father. And my question is, how much bearing and control does this have on your worship, your prayers, and how you view the rest of life? That he is your Father. That you are a child of the creator of the universe. The fact that not everyone is a child of God. Right? I mean, that's what kind of culturally is the thing that's proposed. That, well, we're just all children of God. No, we're not all children of God. Now, that's unfortunate. At the same time, it does make being a child of God actually something special. Most are children of Adam, having no identity change. Who can only appeal to the righteousness of Adam. I want us, church, I want us to, to love this reality, that, to rejoice in this reality, be humbled by this reality, and live in light of this reality, that we are God's children, that we are His sons, that He is our Father. I want you to think about this with me a little further. What good father, what good father is there who would begrudgingly or arbitrarily do good things for his children? Would we call him good if he does good things for his children but doesn't do them or doesn't do them with pleasure, instead does them begrudgingly and does them randomly or arbitrarily does good for his children? We would call this a bad father. I hope you would too. That his heart is far from it. But instead, what do we have in the Father? We have a Father in heaven who does good things for his children. And Paul says that he delights in doing them. That he delights in doing these things. Look at what he says. He says he predestined us for adoption, of course, through Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. But skipping that for just a moment, according to what? The purpose of his will. So if you're looking for another sub-point, we were predestined according, according to his pleasure and his will. We were adopted, predestined to adoption according to his pleasure and his will. Maybe study the word for purpose there. It is, I think it's better understood as an idea of pleasure there. It's not just a his intent or the goal, but there's a, a pleasure aspect there, a delight that the Father has. 
This isn't the only place that talks about this. 1 John 3, 1 through 2. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know Him. And, uh, keep this in the back of your mind. He says this, beloved, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, the beloved, because we shall see Him as He is. I just want to point out to you and, and, and encourage you to think on these later this week what this means. But he delighted in predestining us to adoption as sons. More on this in a bit. But I think the reason why, because he has eternally loved and delighted in the Son, and we are being redeemed and brought into that Son. So he delights in his pleasure in predestining us to what? To be sons in the Son. What does that do? It brings glory and exalts the Son. So God can delight in making us sons because it exalts the Son. This passage is not primarily about just making us sons, although it is, but it's, it's about the Son being glorified as he predestines us to be sons in the Son. Our Father delighted in this. So it's not only his pleasure to predestine us to sons, but his will. It was his will, it was his plan, his decree. I know, I know, many of us kind of live life without plans. We just kind of react to everything. Our Father, in making a son, is not a reaction to anything. It's His plan. It was His decree that everything would happen this way. And one of the things that would happen is that we would be adopted as sons. This is His good and perfect will, as the Bible tell, tells us and talks about. This is God's sovereign plan. Before, again, before the foundation of the world that would be his sons. According to his good pleasure and his eternal decree. I want to read to you Romans 8, 19. Just talking about his will and his plan. It says, for the, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the what? The sons of God. What's, what's going to happen well, God's will is to reveal us as His sons the marvelous work of His grace for all creation to see. Now, one day that when this work is finished in making us these sons that are holy and blameless and we meet Jesus, we will be like He is, 1 John chapter 3 says. And when that happens, we will be presented for all of creation to see, for creation awaits to see the revealing of God's sons. And this is all according to his good pleasure and his eternal decree. That one day we will see Jesus. We will finally and totally be like him and then displayed for the whole creation to see. Our Father delighted in planning our adoption as sons. Just think about that for a second. If you're a unsure if you're a follower of Christ. I just speak to you for just a moment in light of this truth. Did you know that my father delighted in making me his son? And therefore saving my soul from hell. And if you're unsure if you're a follower of Christ, if God has predestined you to adoption, then he delights in doing so. So much so that he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. Jesus came and took upon himself your sin so that he could bear the payment for that sin. That he could be the son bearing the payment for sin for you in your place. And the Bible tells us to re we repent of our sin and trust in that payment of him on the cross. I just encourage you to, to believe that and to run to the Father and ask Him for mercy. 
he is both just and he is merciful. He's gracious and he is. So God takes delight in predestining us to his sons, to be his sons. Because he's going to fill the earth with his glory as he redeems every part of our lives to reflect the image of the son. Now he already said that we are to be blameless and holy. So what does this mean for sons? What does it mean for a son of God who's been adopted, been predestined to adopt and adoption as sons? What does this mean? What is the holy and blamelessness? We cannot be the blameless and holy people unless our identity changes. Right? We must be predestined to be sons. We must be predestined to have a different father. We must become something new. And I think God does this as He predestines us to this adoption. And so when he predestined us to adoption, he also predestined us to live out this adoption. This identity change, this parent or parental change, impacts then the way we live. So the question is, what does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a son? Again, I think Paul chose son for a couple reasons. One, certainly the culture of the son, particularly the firstborn son, had rights to an inheritance of his father. There was glorious things to be given to him as a son. And I have to say, ladies, if, if us men have to be the bride when Jesus comes back, you can be the son for just a little bit, all right? You could have laughed a little bit louder. Come on. There you go. Ha, there we go. Beautiful. Turn the volume up on that recording right there. So yes, he chose sons for this reason. But again, I think the driving thrust here is Jesus, the eternal sonship, being the only beloved Son of God. And Paul knew that it was in the Son that we would be made right to stand before God. So the question is, what does it mean to live as a son? What does it mean to be an adopted son of God? Look at me, or look with me in verse 5 again. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What's he say next? To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us. What does it mean to live as a son? So encourage us, just very bluntly here, to live as a son. Like subpoint A, live as a son. So he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. I think at its core, what it means to live as a son is to live to the praise of his glorious grace. I think Paul is hinting at here what he is going to flesh out later, namely that being a son of God means something for the future, but we are not just sons of God once we get to heaven, we are sons of God now, and so that means something for now, that the way we live, we don't live as sons of Adam anymore, we live as sons of God. What we do, what we say, what we think always says something about the family. Always says something about the Father. The way we act, the way we talk, the way we think. I watched recently the movie Foxcatcher about the story of John DuPont, if, you know, the DuPont Chemical Company, where he takes on this wrestling adventure and adopts the U.S. wrestling team and so on and so forth. Well, there's a scene, this famous scene where DuPont is looking at his his very privileged, uh, high-thinking mother, and at least as far as social status. And they're talking about his wrestling adventure, and she says that wrestling, in a quote, is a low sport. And I don't want people to think of you as low. What is she, th- what is she saying? She's saying this family that is beneath this family, and if you do that wrestling adventure... People are going to think low of this family. John Stott said this. says, it is inconceivable. 
Listen to the the strength of that word. It is inconceivable that we should enjoy a relationship with God as His children without accepting the obligation to imitate our Father and cultivate the family likeness. So I'm going to spend a few moments kind of fleshing this out. What does it mean? And and you're going to have to take time this week and the rest of your life to flesh out what does it mean to be a son of God? What does the scripture say a son of God looks like and lives like? I just want to give you some foundational points and things to think about here. First of all, your identity is not in this world. Your identity is not in this world. You're not a slave to this world. You're a child of the king. You're now a worshiper of God. You're not a worshiper of Adam and the things of Adam or the things of Cain. Even you are a worshiper of God. So worship him. Repent of idolatry and worship him in everything. If you're a son, then you're a son everywhere you go. You're now a servant of God. As a son of God, you're a servant of God. Jesus comes, even though he's the son, he's still a servant of God. And so serve. Repent for being selfish and expecting others to be your slave. And serve. Be a son of God. Live as a son of God. So your identity is not in this world. You've also been set free from the stress. I, I want uh, maybe for some of us to have a, a, an impact. We've been set free from the stress of determining what is right and wrong for ourselves. I don't think we see that as part of what happens post Adam and the fall is that now it is this: what's right, what's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. God reveals, then has to reveal to mankind what is right and what is wrong, but Adam doesn't want that. And then we struggle with whether we want God's right or wrong or determining, for it, for, determining it for ourselves. So we are set free from that. We are, it's decided for us. Now we live in that freedom. As sons, what does the Father want? What is His desire? What is His plan? What is His will? What does the Father want? Children of God, life gets so much easier in some ways when you seek the Father's will, of course, in His Word. I want to say this to you. He wrote it so that you would know your Father. He predestined you as sons so that you could live it. I said it again. He wrote His Word so that you would know your Father. He predestined you as a son so that you could do it. He made you a son so that you could live as his son. So you're set free. You also think about this as sons. You get to walk into your father's presence. You get to walk before God. You get to stand in His presence. You get to see the smile on His face. You get to feel His warm embrace. When you sin, your Father disciplines you, yes, but He condemns you not. He trains you in righteousness having forgiven your iniquity. Think about these things. If you're not a son of God, these are not, these are not true for you. But if you're a child of God, if you're a son of God, I mean, think about it. Think about just, you get to walk into God's presence. And instead of, depart from me, I never knew you, here's the wrath that is due you, instead, here, son, come here. What else do you get to do as a son? You get to bring others to your father. Think about this with me. You get to bring others to your father. I had to ask the question. Like, Do I love others enough to bring people to him? I was encouraged as I was reading one of our DNA leaders evaluation last night, just right before going to bed. And one of the questions on there is talking about the uh, just desire for the gospel and sharing the gospel and living it out. And 
but others recognize this. And, and this person, and, and I think in humility says, you know, I was sharing the gospel for a, f- a number of hours with someone recently. And I, I, just, I just noticed upon reflection that it was just coming out. It was just coming out. And I, there was nothing better for me to talk about. It just came out. And, and that this person even recognized in my life that, there's, that that's what I would rather talk about. And so my question is, like, do you, like, you talk about what you love. Do you love the Father? Do you love the Father? So what you talk about, you get to bring people to your Father. Why wouldn't you want to take your friends to see your Father? Guys, Jesus died taking people to see His Father. It meant that much to Him. He loved and adored so dearly that He was willing to come to the earth so that people like you and me could see His Father. He died so that He could take us to see His Father. Think about that, right? He came, died, so that we could be redeemed and one day He could grasp our hand as we are dressed in white and take us to see His Father. He wanted us to see His Father, to be loved by His Father, to adore His Father, to experience the richness of His Father's mercy. Jesus knew all these things to be true of the Father. The next thing I want to encourage you with is to lay your, down, lay your life down like you are the son of a king, not the son of a pauper. You're not the son of some poor dude. You're the son of a king. Let's live like it. We hoard so much as if this is all there is to have. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's our time. It's our life. You know, parents have a question. Do your kids believe by the way you spend your time, by the way you spend your life, the way you spend your resources, your money, that you are an adopted son of God and that you value the adopted sons of God that Christ was willing to die for? If not, you're showing them that you're a child of Adam and not a child of Christ. A child of God, rather. The reality is, parents, we're painting a picture for our kids all the time. All the time. Your kids are looking. They're watching. You're showing them what you value every moment of every day. You're telling them that you're an adopted son of the king or still a lost child of Adam. You're telling them that you value the adopted children of the king or that you don't care that Jesus died to pay for these adoptions. Beyond parents, do your friends, do your friends around you see you wasting away God's time and money on frivolity or on building God's kingdom? Which is it? Frivolous things or eternal things? Do you you show them, does your life say, I'm an adopted son of God. I value the things of God. I would encourage you, parents, when you can get your kids to be the most honest with you, to ask them, what do you think mom and daddy value the most? What do you think mom and dad value the most? Matter of fact, I'd encourage you to ask them uh, separately. Like, like, what do you think mommy values the most? You know, because if, if Sarah did that, what do mommy and dad, they're, they're going to, what does Sarah value the most? And, and it's not going to be true response for me. And it may make me look better than than what really is true. If I ask them, what does is, what is daddy value the most? I mean, this is just maybe some pragmatic advice. Maybe you as the wife say, child, what does daddy value the most? What do you think daddy values the most? Just a suggestion. Go to your friends. What do you think I value the most? What's most important in my life? And then I, and I have to ask you, all of us, what is it that you most want to give 
to your kids and to your friends, to the people in this world. I know with children, the danger is we want to give them happiness, right? We want to give them happiness. We want them to be happy with me. You realize that that happiness will all be lost the moment they begin enduring the full weight of God's wrath for their sin. That that happiness will disappear. It'll be gone for all of eternity. And I had to say, parents and friends, if you're a father, if you're a child of God, if you're a son of God, you have the eternal glory of the king of the world to give. Why would you give them momentary disappointing happiness? Mom and dad, why wouldn't you give them the father? Give them the father. Tell them my father is glorious. Tell them my father I love and I worship. I want him. I want to be with him. Why wouldn't we tell our kids these things? I even asked the same question myself. Why, why would we not? Give it. Give the Father to your children. Give the Father to your parents, to your co-workers. Give the Father. Don't exchange cheap happiness in mom and dad for eternal delight in the Father. He will be much more satisfying than you and your husband or you and your wife. Paul says that we live now as the sons of God. We live for the praise of his glorious grace and we lead everyone around us now to do the same. We lead everyone to the praise of his glorious grace. So the question is, how do we do this, right? And we keep asking this question and kind of kicking the can a little further down the road. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we live out our adoption as sons? Paul is saying he predestined us to be sons to his praise. And I think, if we think about all these things, we get to walk in the Father's presence, we get to bring others to the Father, we get to lay down our lives as if we we're a son of the King, we get to do all these things. How do we do this? And I think at its core, the predestining to be sons is also the predestining to delight in His glorious grace. And I think that is Paul's foundation for it. How do we live out as sons? By praising His glorious grace. We remember His glorious grace. We give glory to Him for His glorious grace. We delight in His glorious grace. We sing of His glorious grace. If we delight in His grace shown to us in making us His children, why would we want any of the sins and other opportunities that we have? Why would we want to go back to being a son of Adam where only demise and eternal destruction awaits us when we can be sons and delight in the glorious grace of our Father where only the eternal riches of the inheritance of the saints awaits us forever. To the praise of His glorious grace. So, delight, I would say, very plainly, delight in His glorious grace. Very quickly on this, the idea of grace, certainly a major theme in the Bible, but particularly in the book of Ephesians. Now I want, just to help us very quickly, I don't have time to treat grace with what it deserves. Uh, but grace is not, this is what I just want to point out to is grace is not the overlooking of sin or an excuse to live uncommitted, unholy lives. So that was, oh yeah, we got grace! So that means when I screw up, like, I mess up, sorry. Uh, we will, uh, <laughs> When I mess up, we will, uh, there's grace for that, right? There's grace. It was, it was part of my example. There's grace. Instead, grace here, okay, grace here, I want you to think about this with me, was God declaring the filthiness and His utter abhorrence on sin in the sending of His Son as a payment in our place. Well, think about this. God's display of graciousness in sending the Son. So He sends the Son. The Son is the payment required. His death, the wrath of God on Him, is the payment required for sin. What does that say about the sin that required the payment of the eternal Son of God? It says that that sin was eternal eternally and infinitely abhorred by a righteous 
and infinitely holy God. You see that? So God's glorious grace, the praise of His glorious grace, this rescuing work, the sending of the Son to make us sons in Him, is God in some ways declaring to us in the world His abhorrence of sin. So we think about this. To the praise of His glorious grace, what's happening here? Sin is not being overlooked. Instead, payment is still made. Sin is still named for what it is. And it was still held accountable. And Jesus paid the price for that sin. Glorious grace is not the overlooking of sin. It's the naming of it and the payment for it. That's what happens in the glorious grace of God. I want to point you to, this is why... I think what lays the foundation, oh, let me say this last statement. We need to delight in the reality that Jesus adopted our sins so that we might be adopted as sons. All right, so here's what I want to point out to us why this grace is so deep and the extent of it is so far because that's Paul's point at this point in the text because he says what? He doesn't just say, To the praise of His grace, he says what? To the praise of His glorious grace. The intent here for Paul is not just to talk about grace, but to talk about the extent of the grace, or the bounty of the grace, the amount of the grace. I mean, look at where Paul's going to go to next. He's going to go talk about the redemption through His blood. The blood of the eternal Son of God, the required payment. God's declaration of His extent of His abhorrence for sin. So what does this say if glorious grace was required for our sin? What does that say about the depth of our sin? For how great a sin would require the blood of Almighty God. And it's in that sacrificial moment Jesus on the cross paying the price for our sins that our sonship becomes a reality. Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, if, we had shrunk, if He, Jesus, had shrunk from this, speaking of His work on the cross, if He had shrunk from this, we would not be saved. We would not be forgiven. We would not be Christians We would not be children of the second birth. The beloved, speaking of Jesus, descended even to that degree of public shame and died. His body was buried in a grave and a stone was rolled against its door. He descended into hell, the beloved. He went into the lowest parts of the earth. He who had made everything out of nothing descended. And it was for us and for our salvation. It is only as we realize who it is who is suffering in that manner that we realize the depth and the intensity of His love toward us. I say, what glorious grace. And the truth we've seen so far is that God predestined us to be sons. He chose us to bring us into this relationship from enemies to to sons. And then the last question is, how does this adoption take place? Certainly he names it in eternity past. We're to live as sons, but we failed to do that, right? Have you failed to live as a son of God this week? I have. We're to delight in the bounty of grace, but we failed to do that. I want to encourage you that our adoption is not based upon what we do, but we are adopted through Christ, the Beloved. I want to finish out our time thinking about this through Christ, the Beloved. This is how we are adopted as sons. I've been alluding to this all the way through. Five and six, one more time. He predestined us for adoption as sons through what? Through Jesus Christ. Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In the Beloved. These phrases we're about to talk about through Jesus Christ, 
in the Beloved, these phrases should bring great brilliance to what we have been talking about thus far. He adopted us as sons, made us His Beloved, all of this through the Son, such glorious grace. I want you to think about God's beloved people. If you scan the text from the beginning, you see Abraham is called God's Beloved. Moses, in an extra-biblical book, is referred to as the Beloved in Sirach. But certainly there's display of Moses as God's Beloved in the text. It's at the very least implied. Israel's called God's Beloved. Solomon is called God's Beloved. Jesus is called God's Beloved. And as we've seen in 1 John, at least this morning, we are referred to as God's Beloved. All of these people, including us, were God's beloved. Particularly before Christ, they were God's beloved, but not the beloved. Because they too were loved in Christ. So thinking eternal covenant of grace, God's looking, He can call them the beloved, not because they're living holy lives, or not because they even have good hearts yet, but because God has predestined them through Christ God could love them as the Beloved because the Beloved was coming. Each of these Beloveds, thinking of Moses and Abraham and Israel and Solomon, are pointing to the real Beloved who was to come. They couldn't be ultimately the Beloved because of the work that the Beloved would come to do, namely redeem God's children. So then we come to Jesus. Jesus Think about this. Just look at the Gospels. Jesus addresses God only as Father. Isn't that amazing? Just go look. He calls Him His Father. More than 60 times in reference to God. Just recorded. The Father calls Him His Beloved, calls the Son His Beloved multiple times. Matthew 3.17 And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My Beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17, verse 5 He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is My Beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Look at the times when God decides to break open the skies and speak of His Son. What does He call him. He calls him his beloved. Just refers to himself as God's beloved. This relationship has always been and will always be. Jesus has been and will always be God's beloved. The Son has never not been the beloved Son of God. He has, he has eternally proceeded from the Father. He's inseparable and indivisible. He is one with the Father. Lloyd-Jones says Jesus enjoyed the unmixed and perfect bliss and love and holiness and glory of heaven and of eternity. The Son is the Beloved. The glory and majesty of this relationship, I think we see in the measure of the Father's love and the measure of the Son's love. And I like how Lloyd-Jones kind of, helped, kind of helped me think through some of this this past week, but Think about the measure of the Father's love, okay? The measure of the Father's love. How do we measure the Father's love? I think the Father sends the Son. Think about this. The Father sends the Son to do the terrible work for God's enemies. Then the Father looking at His Son. I mean, think about this. The Father's looking down at His Son and the trials he's going through, watching the pain of his son on this earth, both pre-cross and, of course, at the cross. And finally, all of this climaxes at the cross, and now God looks on the Beloved as He takes upon Himself the sins of the elect, and God pours out His wrath on Him. How do we measure the love of God for His children? It's in that moment. It's in that moment. His Son bears His wrath for us. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake, for our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is your Father. This is your Father. Then we think about the measure of the Son's love. When you think about this, he had basked in the Father's kindness, unending and measureless love. He emptied himself to take on flesh, to experience pain, to experience trials, temptation. I want to quote from Lloyd-Jones here. He says this, The height of the paradox of this love, the thing that no human mind can encompass, is that when you stand at the foot of the cross and listen, you hear the words being uttered, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His Father, why have you forsaken me? Everyone else had forsaken him. His disciples had fled and had left him. But now he cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who utters the cry is none other than the Beloved. The one who had basked in the sunshine of the eternal love from eternity without intermission. He reaches a point, hear these words, he reaches a point wherein even he has lost sight of the face and smile of his Father. And Lloyd-Jones says this, he experienced that for you. Why? That we might become the adopted sons of God. That we are adopted as sons because Jesus lived the perfect life, because the beloved, the son lived the perfect life and died to pay the price for our sins so that we might become the adopted sons of the Father. And that we live now as sons as we delight in the glorious grace displayed in the adoption by the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be on earth as it is in heaven. Father, our Savior, the Son, called you Father. And by the work of His blood on the cross, we can call you Father. Father, we can call you Father even in spite of our sinfulness both past, present, and future sins. We can still call you Father. If we've been predestined as sons, what is Matt and what is Sarah and what is Robbie and what is Kristen? What are, these people, their identity has changed and that cannot be changed back. And we are sons. We are sons. Father, also because we are sons, we... We now, and have been fundamentally changed, we now can pursue holiness and blamelessness as we delight in Your glorious grace, Father. I pray that we, in these next few moments, we'd be reminded of, of Your glorious grace and that, Father, You would woo us into holy living and blameless living. Father, we'd pursue being sons of God, living as such. Father, that we, as J.I. Packer speaks, that Father, we would, we would be known as Christians because, you, because we call you Father. Father, I pray 
So you just help us to see that we are sons of you, no longer sons of Adam.